This is Guns and Butter. The, the interesting question will always be a contradiction between reality and the profile. What you think you know about Breivik is known in the parlance as a legend or a cover story. It's a fake ideological profile generated to try to play on the hatreds, the envies, the resentments, the fears of people around the world, either pro or con. One rather obvious thing is that he, he portrays himself as, a, as an extreme right-winger, practically a neo-Nazi, right? He's got a death's head on, on his uniform there in one scene. Looks a little bit like the old SS uniform. But again, the patsy is concocted. The patsy is artificial. You can't build anything on the, on the patsy. Look, what you've got with Breivik is basically a press kit. It's something that a fairly sophisticated uh, public relations firm would, uh, would create for you, right? The, uh, the idea is to build him up uh, as an ego ideal for right-wing uh, neo-fascist nihilists and, and xenophobes uh, all across the world. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Norway Terrorism and the Debt Ceiling. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss the bombing and mass murder in Oslo, Norway on Friday, July 22nd, and the debt ceiling crisis in Washington. First, we take a look at the evidence in the Norway terrorism. Subsequent to the taping of this interview, the second shooter has been written out of the dominant media narrative. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you again. There are now 76 confirmed dead from Friday's bombing in downtown Oslo and the summer camp shooting spree. Norwegian Anders Breivik has been arrested and reportedly confessed to the shootings. The first anomaly that I read regarding this massacre is that there are several eyewitness reports to at least two shooters. The second shooter described as a dark-haired Norwegian and that shots were coming from two different directions. These eyewitness reports have remained consistent. Two shooters would indicate that this mass murder is not the work of a lone nut, but that of a criminal conspiracy. What do you think? I think that's exactly right, and that's a, that's a wonderful place to start. I would urge everybody, when something like this happens, uh, you've got to exercise a great deal of skepticism, and the first thing you need to do is to look beyond the patsy. The patsy, in this case, Breivik, the neo-Nazi, the gun-toting uh, uh, character, he's in your face because the media wants him in your face, and they want you to study him and his statements and his 1,500 pages and his manifesto for the liberty of Europe and every other piece of dribble that he's composed in his lifetime or plagiarized. Uh, and it's better not to do this. It's better to do exactly what you have done, which is to look beyond it. Because after all, when you're dealing with the suspicion of state-sponsored false flag terrorism, inevitably in a case like this, a case of this magnitude and of this international importance, you've got to entertain the fact that the person that is being portrayed as the perpetrator is in fact the patsy in the tradition of 
Atta or Lee Harvey Oswald or, or somebody like this. But let's look beyond him. We can come back to him in a minute. We have to look further because we know that in order to do one of these operations, there have to be moles. There have to be people inside the state apparatus who are complicit in carrying out a terrorist provocation for political reasons. And we also have to look for technicians, the people who, usually in contrast to the Patsy, are actually able, technically, to create the effects that you see. In other words, a shooting spree that kills 75 people with a bomb and, uh, and then uh, a massacre, this may not be within the ability of one person, no matter how proficient, and especially when it's an ideologue and a probable psychotic, a probable paranoid schizophrenic of the type that we see with, uh, with Breivik. This is also the, the testimony of his lawyer. So when you say, and this is, I think, the heart of the matter, this is the beginning of wisdom, is that the um, Oslo Press, and I've had some benefits from some pretty good sources in, in Norway, have pointed out that the newspaper VG uh, is the only one that seems to do um, investigative journalism. They now have two eyewitnesses that are named and other unnamed eyewitnesses who say there were two shooters, not just one, but two. And not only that, as you've said, we have a description of the other shooter, one meter 80 tall, dark hair, looks Norwegian, as they say, has Nordic features. I guess that's how they express it. But you get the idea. Uh, and that's the, the second person. Now, that, that has been persistent. That has been substantial enough so that it's been impossible for the international controlled media to simply avoid it or to write him out of the narrative at an early stage. Uh, it has been on CNN. It's been on CBS Radio News. It's been on France 24. It's been uh, on the NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. So the suspicion of a second shooter is there. Um, the police at the same time say that they're continuing the investigation, but to continue to talk of the second shooter spreads fear. Now, what they often do in these cases is they'll arrest somebody check him out and say, that was the guy we thought was the second shooter, but it turns out that he didn't do it. There was a guy arrested with a knife uh, near the uh, vacation island of this uh, Labor Party youth club. He was arrested, then let go. We've also got a report of people arrested in Poland, and one person arrested in Poland and held. This is apparently the source of the, according to some reports, several tons, six tons of fertilizer, that were ordered by the Patsy Breivik in order to create these bombs, although there are all kinds of reports swirling about that, has, have several tons of this fertilizer disappeared. Anyway, uh, the presence of the second shooter indicates, as you say, a criminal conspiracy. So it's no longer a troubled loner. It's now a conspiracy and quite possibly an international conspiracy with the presence of this, uh, of this guy from Poland. So, we're dealing, therefore, with a possible technician, with somebody who really is a trained, proficient, uh, professional assassin. And that might have been the second shooter. So I urge everybody, hang on to that particular. Don't let them just write that out of the narrative. Now, the second point, I think, involves the moles, right, in, in terms of a network inside the Norwegian state apparatus that might be favoring what we've just seen. And that would be, uh, according to my research, something called SIMAS, S-I-M-A-S, the Security Incident Management Analysis System. This is an activity of the U.S. government, S-I-M-A-S. The individual cells of this are called Surveillance Detection Units, S-D-U's. And uh, we have 
based on Norwegian television reports of November 2010, quite recent, uh, then picked up by German NTV news network, that uh, the Norwegian government was made aware through a report on a television station in Oslo that the United States government was avidly recruiting a network of retired policemen, including one case, the former director of the Oslo anti-terrorist police, a senior man in the police. And the goal of this was allegedly to spy on demonstrations, to identify people who were anti-U.S., otherwise uh, hostile to U.S. foreign policy and so forth. But once you see a network of this type, it's clear that that would be a perfect network to subvert the police. In other words, that these senior retired guys could identify rotten apples in the active duty police. They could subvert them, bribe them, blackmail them, and get them to do things. Well, what might they do? Well, let's then turn to the problems that are that are posed in the in the Oslo case. We're told, first of all, that the Delta Force or SWAT team equivalent, whatever they have, the, the special commandos, that needed to go from an air base near Oslo to go to this island and put a stop to the shooting because people, of course, were making cell phone calls and reporting that a massacre was going on. No helicopters were available. Now, how is that possible? No helicopters available. It sounds a little bit like uh, 9-11, right, where it, it turns out that through various maneuvers and other subterfuges, the, most of the jet interceptors were taken out of the northeast United States and sent either to Iraq or the North Pole or other places so that they would physically just not be the equipment that they needed. looks like we've got something similar. We've then got the fact that the police, the SWAT team, have to drive from Oslo to the vacation island on the roads. When they get there, they've then got to find a boat to get across. Now, it turns out that in the time that they were dithering on the road, a German tourist was able to go back and forth several times, according to some reports, even five to six times between the island and the mainland and saved the lives of about 20 of these kids at the Labor Party camp. So the police are dawdling, reminds you of the Paris police letting uh, Princess Diana bleed to death for an hour in the wreck of her car before they took her to the, to the nearby hospital where her life might have been saved. However, once the police get to the island after 90 minutes of dithering, they can call this guy Breivik by name. They say, hey, Breivik, drop your gun, and he does it. Uh, it, indi- it indicates that they're very well aware of who he is. Uh, and we know that now, b- based on these Norwegian press reports that I've seen, that he was on a list of 40 to 60 names of people who had been doing business with this Polish arms bazaar or fertilizer bomb material bazaar. Uh, it was legal to export that stuff out of Poland, but illegal to bring it into Norway. Nevertheless, he was not arrested for having done it. So he's on a watch list, but then they claim, oh, we, didn't, we couldn't do anything because uh, he hadn't really violated any law, where it actually looks like, like he had. So between the no helicopters, the delay, uh, we forgot to mention that when the police finally try to reach the island, they pick a, a boat that begins to sink. Either they overload it or it's got a leak. It begins to sink. They've got to go back to the shore. So it sounds like the Keystone Cops, but uh, you have to be, I think, cynical enough or or experienced enough to say this kind of incompetence is unlikely. In other words, it seems to be contrived for for a a political purpose. 
Now, the other thing, of course, is in the background, we're always looking for drills and exercises, right? On the morning of 9-11 or in the months leading up or, or following that, we have the 25-plus drills that are associated with the 9-11 spectacle. What do we have in this case? Well, it turns out that uh, the police had been drilling bombs in the heart of Oslo. Uh, this goes back to March 17th to 18th, 2010, quite recent also. Uh, in a building that no longer is standing there called the Sugar Cube, they were rappelling down the outside of the walls. They were throwing concussion grenades, flash grenades into windows. There are films of this on the Internet. What that does is to create a capability. It creates a capability of the police, and it may indeed have left a deposit of explosive materials in the central Oslo area. In other words, this Exercise took place near the Opera House. I'm told by knowers of Oslo that that's about one kilometer or less away from the prime minister's office where this all uh, went on. So it could very well be that a deposit of some kind of explosive materials was set up in March of 2010 and then kept in abeyance for, uh, for this purpose. So now we can just maybe go back briefly to the, to the Patsy without wanting to lose ourselves in the endless meanderings, right? We can't do a summary of the, of the 1,500 pages, but what do we find here? Webster, before we get into the, um, the manifesto, right, the 1,500 yeah, pages? Yeah, the Patsy. Right. Let me ask you a few questions, and then I want you to do that. Yes, it reportedly took an hour and a half for the police to reach the island, and, and they didn't shoot Breivik. They called out his name. Uh, right. as you've said, and he, he simply laid down his arms and uh, went away with them. I mean, it sounded very strange. And also what struck me is that before the attacks, a Breivik took delivery of four tons of fertilizer, which you've mentioned. Right. Now, when right. I heard this, I thought, oh, where have I heard this before? It sounded familiar. Uh, there was the setup of a group in Canada a few yes, years exactly. ago. Also, the Oklahoma City bombing, both are presented as cases of so-called homegrown... But here's the difference. Yeah, homegrown terrorism. In the case of these the Canadian patsies, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police delivered the fertilizer. These poor guys signed for it, and they, they were rounded up. Uh, the, the lesson of that is if, if, the Royal, if Sergeant Preston of the Yukon delivers several tons of fertilizer to your backyard, don't sign for it, say... It's all a terrible mistake. The contradictions are, are endless. Now, did that group in Canada have a name? Is that a case that you... No, it's just, it's just these, these characters in Toronto who wanted to blow up uh, the uh, Canadian Pacific Tower, I think, was supposedly their goal. But again, these, are, these are, are true psychotics. These are psychotic patsies, people who are mentally impaired, mentally disturbed, who sit around talking. All you need to do is to put a double agent into the group who hypes the, the discussion in that direction, you can tape them saying all these things, then they take, they take delivery. But again, I would, maybe we leave these, these questions aside because they're, you know, they're interesting historical parallels. Uh, yes, they are. And of course, and the press keeps bringing up the Oklahoma City bombing and the truck stuffed with fertilizer that, of course, wasn't what blew out the building. It was bombs exactly. inside. Exactly. We, we have very good testimony that, that uh, it was internal controlled demolition. In other words, it was designed to accredit the meme that buildings can simply collapse, which was then mobilized several years later with, with 9-11. So it, according to this, uh, the, the, the classic testimony is from this guy, General Parton, 
and this is quoted in my uh, 9-11 synthetic terror made in USA, who says right. that, that it's, it's just inconceivable that it was done by this deflagration, really, of, of uh, a fertilizer bomb 100 feet away or 100 yards away, whereas you can see that in some cases the, the columns that are more damaged are on the far side rather than the near side and any number of other things. Exactly. So when they started talking about him having received fertilizer, I started thinking of these <laughs> others' cases immediately. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Norway Terrorism and the Debt Ceiling. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I watched this strange video on YouTube reportedly posted by Breivik called a European Declaration of Independence with eerie background music glorifying the Knights Templar Europe. What do you <laughs> what do you make of this video? I think the people at NATO Brussels or at the Langley Literary Society have let their imaginations uh, run a little bit wild. Um, again, the main thing to do with this ideological stuff is to ignore it. The only thing that's interesting about this is who is supposed to be targeted. And what are the, the internal contradictions? One of the obvious ones is 1,500 pages, according to, uh, again, a German uh, researcher who's looked at this, I think, in some detail. He's, he's gone through and says, this is, the English is practically perfect. The guy's not a native speaker of, of English. The manuscript mechanics, the punctuation, the quality of the text looks quasi-professional. It looks like an editorial board did this for him, but then sunk in the middle without attribution we have all kinds of things lifted from the Kaczynski Unabomber Manifesto. In other words, the entire Malthusian radical ecologist uh, stuff that this guy believes in have simply been lifted from the Unabomber without attribution. There are, there are reports that Kaczynski is considering a civil suit against Breivik for violation of copyright. <laughs> so whatever else he's guilty of, whatever else he's guilty of, he may be guilty of plagiarism. He'll have to resign in the way that that German... Uh, minister did earlier earlier in the year so again the the interesting question will always be a contradiction between reality and the profile what you think you know about Breivik is known in the parlance as a legend or a cover story it's a fake ideological profile generated to try to play on the hatreds the envies the resentments the fears of people around the world either pro or con um, one rather obvious thing is that he, he portrays himself as, a, as an extreme right-winger, practically a neo-Nazi, right? He's got a death's head on, on his uniform there in one scene. Looks a little bit like the old SS uniform. The, the, the question with this, though, is why, why should these people be targeted? One of the obvious things is the opposition to the Libyan war is overwhelmingly among right-wingers. It's the Italian Northern League. It is the French National Front. It is the U.S. Tea Party in the House of Representatives. And, uh, well, uh, cut it any way you want to. The leftists and the pacifists have absolutely struck out They're in supporting the war or supporting Obama. And it turns out that it, it falls to these right-wingers, to people who are reactionaries, to nevertheless do something positive, which I welcome in, in opposing the, uh, the Libyan war. And I think that then leads us to the... Uh, to the main question, which is why do this? Now, there are two sides. One is general, one is specific. The general side is that the, the, the government of Norway, even when it is staffed by very bad people, like this Gro Harlem Bruntland 
globalists, uh, people who believe in uh, some kind of a totalitarian world state. At least that's what it looks like to me. Nevertheless, in spite of all this, the Norwegian government, since about 1992-93, has profiled itself as being pro-Arab and pro-Palestinian. They sponsored the Oslo peace accords of Prime Minister Rabin of Israel, the Palestinian President Yasser Arafat. That was done under Norwegian auspices, and they've kept that going. And in recent days, they've said that they will support the declaration of a Palestinian state. They will extend full de jure diplomatic recognition to the Palestinian state. They'll vote for it in the UN General Assembly. Um, there are also uh, plans to boycott various Israeli uh, firms. And indeed, at this labor camp, they had a, an anti-Israeli boycott demonstration uh, the day before. This, however, I, I think this is, it is a, a serious problem for the Israelis as well as for the State Department and various people in, in uh, the European Union and indeed in, in NATO Brussels. However, this is more or less a constant. This is, it's not like there's anything new on this front. What is new is the following. When the Libyan military aggression started by the NATO colonialist uh, leadership, they uh, turned to Norway and demanded that they participate. At that time, the foreign minister, a person called Sturda, S-T-O with a diagonal line through it, R-E, Sturda, foreign minister Sturda warned Obama and others, Sarkozy and so forth, Cameron, don't get involved militarily with Libya. It's good advice. The advice was, was uh, disregarded. NATO went ahead, and tremendous pressure was put on Norway to join the bombing, which they did. They signed up for 90 days of bombing, and they contributed six F-16s, which, according to most reports, carried out 10% of the actual bombing, not the no-fly zone, the air interdiction, but the actual bombing and killing in Libya. However, when the 90 days came to an end, or even before that, they announced that they were dropping out, that their six planes, 10% of the effort, were going down to four during the month of July, and that now by July, by um, August 1st, excuse me, by August 1st, they would be dropping out completely. Now, the interesting thing is, what's the effect of that on other smaller NATO states? The Netherlands, the Dutch government, on the same day that Norway announced this, put out their own statement saying that they had six planes, 10% of the effort, that they were going to keep the six planes working for NATO, but no more bombing only the air interdiction, only the no-fly zone. And then you heard Prime Minister Berlusconi beginning to voice doubts about the advisability of this entire thing. He's, he's helped along again by that Northern League, demanding that he get out of it because they don't want it. They, they, they fear a, a tidal wave of refugees, among other things. There are all sorts of reasons to be against this war if you're in Europe. Uh, and then we have the U.S. House of Representatives falling short, but only by about 15 votes in defunding the war, basically saying no more money, and therefore this uh, military adventure must end. I take the, uh, the overall purpose of this to be a warning to the Norwegian government, but above all to the other NATO states, don't drop out of this because we know where you live, and we have S-I-M-A-S. -S. You could look at S-I-M-A-S. Maybe as the new Gladio. Right? Gladio was the stay-behind network that then turned out to be instrumental in so much of the European terrorism of the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. Maybe the new Gladio is now this anti-terror 
network and database that the U.S. has assembled under this acronym of SIMAS. The so-called surveillance detection units are now the modern equivalent of the Gladio cells. But wouldn't you agree that false flag operations are typically used not to punish elites, but to control domestic populations? In Italy in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they were blamed on the left to force the majority of the population into the state's hands seeking protection, a protection racket, you could say. This one is blamed on the right to drive the left into the state's hands, the global state run by the U.S. But there's no divergence of interest between the ruling elite of Norway, even its labor branch, and the ruling elite of the U.S. As you've said, the target is not the Norwegian ruling elite, it's their Norwegian, European, and U.S. domestic populations. We're already hearing and reading progressive media warn about right-wing terrorism. Isn't this yeah, predictable? I, would, I, would, I, I, doubt, I very much doubt the validity of any of these categories, left, right, progressive, reactionary. Um, I, it, it's, it's become almost impossible to, to assign any significant meaning to any of this stuff because the, the ideological fronts are in such uh, rapid uh, flux. And indeed, the left-wing position has basically collapsed into, into nothingness. We now have you know, left pacifists, warmongers for Obama, for NATO, eager to invade Pakistan, eager to attack Libya, eager to go on to Syria, and so forth. I think you have to look at it somewhat. It's a more complicated picture. When the empire is collapsing, unlike the 70s, 80s, this is now the dominant tendency, not localized, but dominant. The elites are a target. If you look at this entire thing, who's the target? Well, the bomb goes off at the prime minister's office in the middle of all the government buildings. So the government certainly is a target. Uh, and then who gets killed? The children of the Labor Party activists. We, we still don't have an analysis of who got killed and whose parents are in the government or the party and so forth. So, indeed, this is striking pretty close to home. The difference is that the elites will, will say, oh, my God, NATO has bombed us because we dropped out of the Libyan war, whereas what you're talking about, this left-right stuff, this is for the, for the hoi polloi, for the masses. They're supposed to salivate in a Pavlovian MK Ultra fit based on you know, ideological profiles yes. one way or the other. Exactly, which is exactly what they're doing, right? Yeah, but again, the thing to hold on to is the people who are blamed for this are exactly the same circles that are against the Libyan war. So that also ultimately amounts to the same thing. Look, the collapse of NATO is now a definite perspective. I mean, you can see how NATO as an alliance would collapse. NATO is fragile. NATO is it's obsolete. It's only one lost war away from collapsing. And if that's Libya, that could be the end of it. How ironic if Gaddafi succeeds to and lives on to fight and, and uh, bring about the collapse of NATO. But that's definitely possible. So what they're concerned about is this event is going to be read in Ottawa, right, in, in Rome, in, uh, in other NATO countries, meaning, God, somebody's really serious about this NATO thing. We have a statement today where NATO says, we will continue to bomb Libya. We're implacable. This is after they, they just bombed a hospital and killed 10 people. And they've also succeeded now in bombing the great man-made river, the, the uh, huge, really worldwide, uh, remarkable uh, facility that Gaddafi had created to provide potable water for the, for the Libyan population. That has now been, been bombed in the, in the area of, oh, of Brega. That's horrible. 
I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Norway Terrorism and the Debt Ceiling. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, what has WikiLeaks leaked that is relevant to Norway? Simply this: there's, there's been a there's been a, a parade of WikiLeaks. Um, you can see an, an interesting article in the London Daily Telegraph that sums these up. The WikiLeaks line, typically because it is a CIA limited hangout operation from beginning to end, is that the Norwegian government is incompetent. They don't take terrorism seriously. They won't accept a British team of 12 people who want to come into their country and, uh, and uh, nose around. Um, very specifically, some bomb-making equipment that was in the hands of some uh, group, maybe with double agents, has escaped from the surveillance of the Norwegian government. So maybe that's fallen into the hands of, of, of somebody. Uh, the, 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 the headline is, WikiLeaks posts American State Department cables saying, the Norwegian government is in way over their head. They just don't understand the seriousness of the situation. So what WikiLeaks has done, how convenient, is to provide a ready-made case for the fall of that government, for a vote of no confidence in Prime Minister Stoltenberg, because he's incompetent, he's a bungler, he couldn't, prevent the, he couldn't protect his country against terrorism, even when the wonderful State Department was there warning him that they better get serious. So this is typical of WikiLeaks. It never hits the U.S., the British, the Israelis, never hits the CIA, MI6, Mossad. They get off of the whole coat. The people who get slammed are the targets du jour of the CIA. Well, now, when, when somebody posts to WikiLeaks, they do it anonymously, right? Right, so- meaning that it's a sewer in which any intelligence agent can, uh, can float anything he or she wants. It, it- could be a cigar-chomping uh, FBI agent who decides to post some piece of creative writing. You know, with the, these documents also are, are quite evidently doctored. They're not authentic in many cases. Yeah, well, that's interesting because uh, obviously the U.S. government could post on WikiLeaks anonymously because anyone can could, and right? do. That is the entire purpose. Remember that this was the present at the creation was our dear friend Cass Sunstein, now sitting in the White House, his uh, op-ed, Brave New WikiWorld, in the Washington Post in early 2007, announced a wonderful new organization that was going to attack the great cyber wall of China, and it was called WikiLeaks. So he now got into the uh, Obama White House with that, and his wife, the infamous Samantha Power, is sitting in the National Security Council, and what we know about her is that she ran the destabilization of Egypt. Along with uh, Samantha Power, we had Michael McFowell telling Field Marshal Tantawi what to do, mainly kick Mubarak out of the country and, uh, and go for this color revolution that they put on. Now, the Oslo shooter, Breivik, uh, Breivik's father was a Norwegian diplomat with the London embassy. Wasn't the Christmas underpants bomber's father a diplomat as well? Is this significant? I think he was a diplomat and a banker, was he not? That sounds right. Well, the, the point is, a diplomat... It, to be a diplomat, if you're the commercial attaché in the Norwegian embassy in London or Paris, you may well be a spook. Uh, so that's certainly a, a, a possibility. The other guy was a military officer, so that's interesting. Remember that uh, Norway, of course, was occupied by the Nazis during uh, World War II, and you had this uh, Vidkun Quisling government, uh, and I'm sure there are some people who are nostalgic for that. So it's possible that the cultural 
background of the patsy somehow includes some echo of that. But again, the patsy is concocted. The patsy is artificial. You can't build anything on the, on the patsy. Look, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was supposedly a great communist sympathizer, except he was working for the CIA operations director at the U.S. Customs and other U.S. agencies. Right? He was sheep-dipped in the Soviet Union. They attempted to sheep-dip him in Cuba. They didn't succeed. Mohammed Atta, pious Muslim fundamentalist? No. Somebody who went to the discotheque, uh, cohabited with a prostitute, and was a great uh, admirer of uh, vodka, gin, and other mixed drinks. Right. So, and, and, and what about these pictures of Breivik in uniform and full regalia as a Freemason and as a skin <laughs> diver with an assault rifle with a scope? Well, he's obviously seen Cho, right, the, the, uh, the um, shooter at Virginia Tech in April of 2007 who managed to kill, what, about a dozen people. Uh, Cho, you'll remember, had these publicity photos of himself, right, brandishing all kinds of weapons and scowling at the camera. So... What you've got with Breivik is basically a press kit. It's something that a fairly sophisticated uh, public relations firm would, uh, would create for you, right? The, uh, the idea is to build him up uh, as an ego ideal for right-wing uh, neo-fascist nihilists and, and xenophobes uh, all across the world. So he's imitating Cho. He's imitating the Unabomber in the sense that he's an ideologue. Not only does he imitate the Unabomber, he actually lifts basically the entire manifesto and spreads it out in that 1,500-page uh, uh, screed. And then, of course, like Major Hassan of Fort Hood, uh, if you can't do the shooting, then get two or three other shooters to help you, which was the report from, uh, from Fort Hood. And, of course, the, comp the comparison to McVeigh is also there. He's basically killing on the scale of McVeigh, and compared to the size of the country, Norway, he's, he's actually outdoing McVeigh. So he's, he's a kind of a palimpsest of recent patsies, and that's, of course, how they work. Uh, it was interesting. As of about June, well, as of about May, it was clear that some kind of false flag terrorism attack of some significant proportions was likely. First possibility was since NATO had killed Gaddafi's son and three grandchildren, they would do something and blame it on Libya. This has not happened. Then there was the... Uh, liquidation of the pseudo-Bin Laden, which we've discussed, right? completely fatuous manufactured event targeting Pakistan. But there was the potential there that something would be signed, Zawahiri and the, uh, the Bin Laden commandos of, of Al-Qaeda. They decided not to do that. Rather, it's, it's something which directly relates to the question of Libya, maintaining the Libyan war, keeping NATO together, and the ability then to demonize all of these right-wing groups that are the main enemies of the Libyan war. So this one has got Libya written all over it, and it's political from the word go. It targets the prime minister and the government and the children of the governing uh, elite. And uh, also with regard to the uh, photographs of Breivik on the Internet, they look like they were taken in a studio. I mean, they're not funky cell phone pictures. No, as I say, this is, this is professional quality, public relations, press kit, uh, publicity photos. So it just shows how, how artificial the entire thing is. And again, look at the editing job that was done on the, on the manifesto. There are other things to be said. He loves Serbia. I was just talking to a magazine in Serbia yesterday. They were highly interested. Uh, the kiss of death for Serbia is for them to be endorsed by Breivik. And right now, 
we have reports today that, that the NATO criminal gang that runs Kosovo, this KLA or UCK or whatever they call themselves these days, that gang of murderers and, and drug pushers are provoking border incidents with Serbia. So just in time for a NATO attack, Serbia is demonized in the manifesto. Demonized through praise, of course. Uh, Breivik's attorney says that Breivik claimed that he was one of three cells. What do you make of this claim? Uh, I think we want to take this with a grain of salt, but all of the affirmations that are in this crazy manifesto can be used for uh, government action. In other words, one of the things he says is, I considered using weapons of mass destruction. Now, that, of course, means that any lobbyist or contractor or official can now say, look, you see, the threat of atomic, bacteriological, and chemical terrorism is real, and therefore we must take measures against this. At one point, he claims that he's got 80, 80 cells working with him. Now it's down to two in Scandinavia, I think, maybe one in Norway, one in Sweden. Uh, all of that becomes a pretext for further raids, for totalitarian measures, for police state measures, uh, and, and, and so forth. Uh, but again, none of this can be considered as the authentic, from the heart ideology of anybody. These are all things that are cynically composed by little gray bureaucrats at NATO Brussels or Langley or uh, Cheltenham, where the British have their uh, signals intelligence uh, operation and so forth. Well, switching subjects, let's talk about the important political developments in the United States with regard to the debt ceiling. A former president, in fact, uh, President Bill Clinton, has urged Obama to invoke the 14th Amendment, Section 4. Could you tell us what the 14th Amendment is and what is the issue here with regard to the debt ceiling? Well, it is true that uh, former President Clinton has recommended this. It's also been written up, uh, for example, a brief article by uh, Katrina Vandenhoevel in The Nation, and there have been some articles by uh, some legal scholars. There's an article by James Galbraith, who essentially um, recommends the same thing. It's simply this. The 14th Amendment, of course, is the one that establishes uh, citizenship, right? The 13th abolished slavery, the 14th says that uh, anybody born in the United States is a citizen. And it has, however, this fourth section, which says the public debt of the United States, including pensions and bounties involved in the suppression of rebellion and insurrection, shall not be questioned. Now, this is a post-Civil War amendment. It responds to the attempt by unreconstructed Confederates to get, for example, the pension system. Right here in Washington, we have a, a pension building, a building with those columns. It's a wonderful uh, building. That was the headquarters of a post-war pension department, which paid pensions to Union soldiers. And as the southern states came back in, some of these unreconstructed Confederates said, we're going to cut off the funding for that because we don't appreciate what you did. So it was necessary to anchor some of those provisions in the, in the Constitution. But what you're left with today is the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. It means once you've made these commitments, I guess today you'd have to include Social Security in that and other entitlements, which are really contractual uh, obligations, that the public debt shall not 
the question. What it means in modern terms is default is illegal. Default is unconstitutional. Default is a federal crime. There is no uh, way that a government, uh, that this government can choose default because that 14th Amendment, Section 4, has permanently closed the door to default in any form. Uh, and I believe that this is the key to getting out of this terrible crisis that we're in. Uh, specifically, you have got in this Tea Party, especially now the Tea Party Caucus, let's forget about the Tea Party as a movement, which is, is much more complex. But in terms of who you now have in Congress, these people are ideological fanatics. They are funded by reactionary billionaires uh, and others who have always hated the New Deal and Great Society entitlements. They wish to destroy Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. They wish to destroy Head Start, right, the program for uh, children to, to provide daycare and some meals, the WIC program, the high-protein meals for mothers and, and babies, uh, unemployment insurance. They wish to destroy that, uh, along with every other successful uh, social advance, the, the economic rights of the American people uh, fought for over centuries and finally realized under the New Deal and the Great Society. So their goal is to destroy all that. Uh, these people are political novices. Uh, their, their ideology is um, the Austrian school. They really believe that it's possible to have a market without a government, that government and the state are an evil that should be abolished, that the market alone should be supreme. They fetishize the market. Of course, in reality, we don't have a free market. We have cartels and monopolies and oligopolies, but they, they can't see that. And, of course, the last time we had a totally free market was in the old Stone Age, the Paleolithic, when there was no state, when there was no government. As soon as you get into the new Stone Age or the Neolithic, there is a government. And, and from that time on, you're not dealing with the free market anymore in any form. You're dealing with political economy, as every economist really ought to know. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show... Norway Terrorism and the Debt Ceiling. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the problem these people have is that uh, something like 70 to 80 percent of the American people support the basic New Deal, Great Society, social safety net, be it Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the other things that I've said. Not all for old people, by the way. A lot of it for children, uh, S-CHIP, right, uh, the special health program for children and, and related things. They want to destroy this. The problem is there is no constitutional way for them to destroy it. They can't hope to pass what they want through the Congress. Uh, they'll never get a majority. It just can't be done. So rather they've decided to take the path of extortion, of putting the government under duress, and essentially knocking out, destroying a part of the Constitution through an outside event, which is this, uh, this bankruptcy. It is nothing short of a coup d'etat against the Constitution of the United States. They always claim they love the Constitution, but in practice they hate it. The Constitution says the general welfare, not once, but twice. They hate that. Uh, they believe government should serve the, the, the wealthy few. Uh, the, the Constitution says the Congress shall have the power to borrow money. They hate that. That's their, their whole balanced budget amendment basically says the founders were wrong. The wisdom of the founders and the framers is worthless. 
This, of course, was one of the critical things in the transition from the Articles of Confederation to the actual U.S. Constitution is this ability of the, of the central government to, to borrow money. The Tea Party says, no, we want to roll that, we want to roll that one back. Um, so they want to do all this. They can't do it through legal means. So their answer to that is bankrupt the government. All of these negotiations with Obama, in my view, are a fraud, a sham, a deception. They are not negotiating in good faith, at least not the 90 to 100 Tea Party fanatics and then the people that they control, intimidate, bribe, and, and so forth. Um, their goal is bankruptcy. Well, do the Tea Party faction in Congress have enough votes to uh, block the raising of the debt ceiling. They may well, and this is what we're going to find out. But frankly, I don't want to wait to find that out. I want action now. Let me just continue the, the analysis, though, is the way they think this would work is the following. If you can bankrupt the U.S. government, if you get default, you get bankruptcy and chaos. It is the essence of chaos and anarchy that they are pursuing because they are right-wing anarchists. That's who they are. They believe that the only way you can destroy the New Deal entitlements is by bankrupting the government. At that point, the government will no longer be able to borrow money, or the borrowing will be at such a prohibitively high rate of interest that it will not be practical. So they're trying to strangle the government, as this Grover Norquist has said, to drown the government, to cut it down to size. They want to cut away the financial support of the government. They've also got legislation that says in the event of a crisis, the Chinese get paid, the Japanese get paid, the Saudis get paid, and then maybe the military gets paid, and ultimately the, uh, the entitlements come in dead last. And dead means dead, because this is measurable in mega deaths. Millions of Americans will die as a result of this policy. If you cut off Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, from what it is now to zero from one day to the next or other drastic, radical, draconian, brutal cuts, you're going to kill people. They don't care. They, they, of course, they're motivated by hatred, envy, greed. They're obsessed with the idea that they're being taxed to pay for minority groups. This is a constant refrain. There's a lot of racism. There's also class hatred, I guess, is the real platform, uh, the, the most common denominator of all of them is class hatred. They want the privileges of the rich to be exalted over the, over the very survival of the of masses of people. So they really want default. They think it's positive good. It is, it is the goal of everything that they do. Now, confronted with this, since they refuse to negotiate in good faith, we have to look now, what could the president do? Well, the problem is this. First of all, the president is confronted with competing statutes. There's one statute which is the debt ceiling that says you're not allowed to go above uh, 14.29 trillion or whatever it is. Uh, and they've already reached that as of about the middle of May. So you're not allowed to increase the public debt of the United States outstanding above that level. It's a debt ceiling. That's one statute, but there are other statutes. There's another statute which says federal budget 2011, which directs the president by law to make a whole series of other expenditures. It says, the budget being a law, you must spend these sums of money on these purposes. That's what a budget is. In addition to that, you've got the entitlements, that you must make these payments. And that would seem to be covered by the pensions, uh, at least 
in a general way that are mentioned in the 14th Amendment. Again, there they're talking about civil war pensions, but now we don't have civil war pensions anymore. We have Social Security. Looks to me like that could be covered under the, under the 14th Amendment also. So uh, you've got to make the entitlement payments, and every time you sell the Treasury bond, that's a contract to pay interest and principal at the date specified in the bond. So a bill, a bond, a note is also a contract. So on the one side, you've got the debt ceiling. On the other side, you've got this whole array of other laws, other statutes and contracts that you've also got to honor. So what do you do? Well, if the statutes are conflicting, we have to appeal to the Constitution. What do we find? Well, whenever you look at it, you're struck by the fact that there are two mentions of the general welfare, not once in the preamble, but twice also in the purposes of Congress. The Congress is supposed to watch out for the common defense and the general welfare. Well, now we're talking general welfare, but we're also talking common defense because we have these wars, right? This is all being done in wartime. It makes it even more uh, surreal. But then we look and we see it's up to the Congress to borrow money. Fine. That's one constitutional provision that bears. But then there's this other one. There's the 14th Amendment, Section 4, which says the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Now, I read that as meaning you're not allowed to default. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. It's a federal crime. And if some other branch of government won't do it, it's up to the president to make sure to take care that the laws be faithfully enforced. It means that Obama, even though he's got all the problems that we know, must be required to invoke the 14th Amendment. And it would take the following form. Obama directs Geithner to resume treasury auctions immediately with the specific goal of maintaining the full faith and credit of the United States by making all payments, all budget payments, all debt payments, all entitlement payments, all entitlements of any kind down to the penny. Defense contractors, other government contractors, medical payments, well, you know, it's, it's a... It's a never-ending catalog. In other words, if you make the catalog long enough, everybody will register that somehow they're involved one way or another, directly or indirectly. Obama has said that he doesn't, he doesn't want to invoke this option. This is a misconception. This guy is supposed to be a professor of constitutional law. It's pathetic. This is not an option. This is the Constitution talking. This is an imperative. You are told the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. That means you are not allowed to default. You cannot choose whether you want to invoke it or ignore it. It's not an option you can exercise or not exercise. It binds you. It ought to bind these people in Congress, but we see what they are. So now we're left with the president. The buck stops here. This is the final line of defense. He must invoke the 14th Amendment immediately. Again, he should be impeached if he does not uh, resume treasury auctions. The failure to resume treasury auctions under the premises of the 14th Amendment is an impeachable offense, and it's added to his violation of the War Powers Act in Libya and his failure to get a declaration of war in that case. There's no room in this for tax cuts. There's no room or tax increases. There's no room in this for attacking the entitlements. This is simply a matter of law. All of these expenditures are already programmed into legislation. In other words, they're all authorized by law in the terms of the 14th Amendment, and they've got to be made. So if the Congress refuses 
to specifically mandate borrowing money, the president must. What, what this means, in effect, is the debt ceiling itself is unconstitutional. Until 1917, there was no debt ceiling. It was brought in by Woodrow Wilson, the same guy who brought you the Federal Reserve. Very bad deal, similar to Obama in many ways. And since then, it's been going on. It has now become a tool of extortion and uh, blackmail and the attempt to destroy this form of government. Because if you pitch this country into bankruptcy and default and anarchy, this form of government will not survive. I urge people to go back to look at uh, what I refer to as the, um, the first inaugural of Roosevelt, where he says that we normally want to maintain the traditional uh, balances among the, the various branches of government. But in an emergency, you've got to do what is necessary for the general welfare and for the public interest. So I think that's, that's pretty much the situation. So why hasn't Obama invoked the 14th Amendment? I think because he fundamentally he's acting in bad faith. As a Wall Street puppet, he wants to use this crisis to carry out what he regards as his mission, which is not what he talked about, not hope and change. But if we go back to that famous uh, interview with the Washington Post editorial board in the week before his inauguration, you can find it in my Surviving the Cataclysm, by the way. Uh, he says that his goal is to fix Social Security and Medicare, that Social Security, he says, is easier to fix and Medicare is harder to fix. My basic interpretation of this is he wants to wreck both as we've known them. And therefore, this unbelievable gesture in the week after July 4th, coming forward and saying, I'm putting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security on the table, even though Social Security certainly is a whole separate department of the budget, and there is no reason for him to make these unilateral concessions one after the other, causing serious harm and, and indeed death uh, among uh, lots of people who are going to be hit by these, uh, by these cuts. So it's a Wall Street program. You can look at somebody like Peter Peterson. He's a super rich plutocrat, oligarch, and parasite, lives in a palatial mansion on Fifth Avenue. This Peter Peterson, the former head of Lehman Brothers, heard of them? Uh, they've done wonderful things for this country. Peter Peterson has got a whole institute on Massachusetts Avenue of international economics. The main purpose of this is that the New Deal entitlements must be destroyed. That's his program, speaking from his palatial mansion on Fifth Avenue. So what you're saying is that both the right wing, in terms of the Tea Partiers, and Obama, the president, that they're both so-called negotiating in bad faith for different, reason, for different reasons. The difference is the, the, the gangsterism of the Tea Party is more extreme in the sense that they, they are going for a knockout. They want to destroy the entitlements in one fell swoop. They want to get the bankruptcy, the inability to borrow, and at that point, the entitlements will be ranked last in the priorities. The Chinese investors will get paid, they say, but you won't. You will die. Obama is a stealthier, more deceptive uh, approach. It masquerades under the desire to reform and save the entitlements, but ultimately he wants to put them on a track to uh, what, what Gingrich once said, let it wither on the vine. That's, that's Obama is more wither on the vine. So now we have a Democratic president who has the same strategy as Newt Gingrich 15 years ago. It shows the, the ideological degeneration of the entire U.S. framework. 
Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Norway Terrorism and the Debt Ceiling. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G.